It's the first day of fall. Long period of cold weather ahead. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Seth Richardson, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin, who are all excited about fall and then winter in Northeast Ohio. Bring I'm it very on. excited about it, honestly. I, I mean, love the fall. Fall is objectively the best season. So. Absolutely, especially winter here in Cleveland. Seasons. <laughs> what, Laura? I said winter is ski season, so no complaints here. Okay, well, that's it's good to hear that everybody has got the glass half full. <laughs> Let's see if that carries through the debates we have with our questions ahead. What's the latest Cleveland suburb to become a money-grubbing speed trap while telling us it's not about the money, it's about safety? Lisa Garvin, it's amazing how often they tell us that, even though this is clearly a cash grab. Who is it? What's going on? And how is it legal? I thought these automated cameras had been pretty much disallowed by the Ohio Supreme Court. Chris, 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 I don't understand what you have against a good old fashioned speed trap. Come on. (laughs) And there are still cameras in East Cleveland, as I can attest to. But actually, this camera is being installed by the Mayfield Heights Police Department. Uh, They're going to be putting it on 271 northbound between the Ridgebury overpass and White Road and southbound between Wilson Mills and Ridgebury. And Mayfield Heights is the city immediately east of me. So, I mean, this is area I drive in a lot. Um, I will say on that stretch of 271, people drive like crazy. Uh, As a matter of fact, the average ticket, the the Mayfield Heights police chief, Paul Matthias, says the average ticket they write is 89 miles an hour now. That's pretty fast. This posted speed limit is 60 miles an hour. I will tell you this, and these are how the fees break down. So if you're driving 61 to 79 miles an hour, that's 150 bucks. If you're going 80 to 90, it's $200. If you're going above 90, it's $300. I do have a problem with the first tier there. So if you're driving one mile over the speed limit in Mayfield Heights, you could get a $150 ticket. I know most cops kind of, you know, let things slide, you know, five miles an hour over or 10 miles an hour, but it looks like they're going to be cracking down just if you're going one mile over the speed limit. The uh, tickets, you have 30 days to pay the ticket. You get the ticket through the mail. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but people drive like crazy on that section of 271. Yeah. They've been sitting there watching Willoughby Hills, which is another gigantic speed trap on the interstate. They're looking at the money they're raking in and they want some of it. This is not about safety. This is about money. The, um, there, the, the, Laura Johnston, speak to this a little bit. The, the, it is much harder to use automated cameras now. You have to have a police officer present when they're being used, right? Right. So Mayfield Heights, they said it's a handheld camera. So you figure there has right. to be a hand and a body attached to that camera. But yeah, they. Uh, it, it seems like they're getting around the law this way. So, so they'll they'll put an officer out there. And I guarantee you the number of tickets they write more than pay his salary and they rake in a lot of bucks. It's it's every suburb that has an interstate running through their their areas looks at it as a way to to do a cash it, grab on people. And I know the argument. The argument is don't speed, don't speed. Everybody speeds. But Nobody does. Lynn, the speed yeah, limit. but 89 didn't miles Lynn an Dale hour. Put, 
All right, so give those people tickets when you're out on the on the street. But that's not what this is about. This is about getting just grabbing the people that are driving through. They're gonna. It's not going to be Mayfield residents, so they're not going to make their local residents angry. It's the commuters that go through, and they're going to pluck them off. It's like what Cleveland did when they had the stationary cameras. They put it at all the commuting points, and we're public about it. They said, "Yeah, we don't want our residents getting these. We want the commuters getting these, and then they can give us extra money." the hypocrisy is saying it's about safety. It's not about safety. Is you know, did he offer any accident statistics for that stretch of road? No. Have, have he, they seen an incredible right? So he, no, how, he how dangerous is it? It's it's. Um, I'm glad I don't drive through there very often because because I just think this is bogus. Anyway, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Let's talk about former Cleveland Bishop Anthony Pilla, one of the more beloved figures to be on the Cleveland stage in recent decades, after news came Tuesday that he died at age 88. Laura Johnston, for people that weren't around for most of his time, I think, I think they'd have a hard time understanding just what a beloved figure he was in Cleveland. I mean, because he was a native son, because he never sought the higher offices in the church, people loved this guy. Yeah, absolutely. He he did a lot for the people of Cleveland, and he also helped start a national dialogue on the role of the church in the city. He didn't just abandon the city for the suburbs when people started moving out, but really kept the parishes there, which I think endeared him to a lot of people. But he was a bishop of the Diocese of Cleveland from 1981 until his retirement in 2006. He was my bishop basically from the time I started paying attention in church. So his name is like always on the tip of my tongue at mass. When you say bishop, like the next word should be Pilla, not Malesic, or I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he was bishop for a long time. Um, Archbishop Nelson Perez, he's now at the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. He was Malesic's predecessor, said Pillow became one of his close friends while he was in Cleveland. He called him an incredible source of wisdom and counsel and a really great example of what it means to be a bishop. And the love that people had for, for him was just amazing. So I think he recognizes that. And you're right. He didn't want to climb the ladder any, any further. Actually, he voluntarily stepped down in 2006. He hadn't reached the mandatory retirement age of 75. And you wonder if that is in part because of the clergy sex abuse scandal, which definitely marked the later end of his career and it was a dark spot. Actually, I, I think the reason was, and we saw it bear out with the person that followed him, we haven't mentioned Bishop Lennon, he didn't close churches down in the city. He didn't do take the moves that were necessary for Catholic dioceses and big cities to to cut them back because they couldn't afford it. And so when he left, they brought in from Boston Bishop Lennon, who who methodically went around and closed church after church after church, showed up to say the final mass at each one of the churches and took just one beating. But I think that's part of the reason that Pilla left is he realized that he would be the vehicle for closing churches and he didn't want any part of that because he cared so much about them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're a week beyond the primary, so let's get an update on the Cleveland mayor's race. Seth Richardson, in the first week, it's all about the endorsements, I guess. Yeah, it's been a, a little quiet, so to speak, but I, I think that's probably just kind of regrouping by the campaigns. Uh, the big news that really came out was, uh, you know, Councilman Blaine Griffin, who represents, uh, you know, the west side, uh, or I'm sorry, the east side district that includes, you know, Larchmere and Woodland Hills and some of Shaker, that sort of area, uh, came out in favor of Kevin Kelly. 
Um, you know, not not a total shocker by any means, especially when you consider some of the council and mayor dynamics going on. Right. I think we, we it's kind of open, openly known that uh, Griffin would like to be the next council president. And uh, you can't go without saying that Carrie McCormack, who also, you know, has some uh, uh, ideation on being the next council president, endorsed Bibbs. So it's interesting that they uh, they've kind of set up that ticket. Um, the other interesting endorsement. Well, that hold, actually- on, hold on. Stop yeah. there, though. I. I, I do think it is a little bit surprising that Griffin did that. He could have just sat out. I think it harms his chances of being council president, actually. I think, you know, I, 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 right now, it, it, this is bibs to lose. There's not an easy path for Kevin Kelly to win this race for reasons we talked about last week. And, and you could see a council that is changing a bit um, in and with supporters of Justin Bibb. And I, I'm not sure. Blaine endorsing Kevin Kelly, who's seen in many quarters as a continuation of what exists now, helps him win the votes he would need to become the council president. I I mean, I guess it really kind of depends on who wins. Right. And, you know, Bibb is it it looks like Bibb has a better chance of winning just because of what we saw in the primary. Right. And if you know, if he does win, then you're kind of in a position where other council members might look to somebody who supported Bibb and say, well, I can probably, you know, I have a better chance of getting some of my stuff done if I've got a, you know, a through line to the mayor. Uh, you know, it's probably the same way with, you know, Griffin and Kelly. If, if Kelly does win, then I, I expect that, uh, you know, Griffin would be able to really kind of uh, coalesce support because there's, you know, sort of that through line. It partly depends on on whether the council members who are facing pretty stiff challenges like Tony Brancatelli prevail. Mm. I would think if Rebecca Marr ultimately beat him, that she would be a Kerry McCormick vote, not a Blaine Griffin vote. Yeah, that'll um, that'll be a big part of it. So so but but if Blaine had not endorsed, if he just said, look, I'm going to sit this out, let the voters decide uh, it's up to them. It wouldn't have harmed him if Bib wins. I just I was a little bit surprised he did it. I get it. There's some loyalty there. They've worked closely together. But you can always say, hey, look, I'm sitting this out. I'm looking at the future and and I've got to take steps that I think are smart. Um, What's the other endorsement that you wanted to talk about? So, yeah, just this morning, um, SEIU Local 1199 or uh, District 1199, you know, one of the bigger unions and more active unions in, uh, you know, both Cleveland and in the state endorsed Justin Bibb. Uh, you know, I think I talked about this a little bit last week, which it's it's not a huge shocker by any means. SEIU and Kevin Kelly have been beefing for quite some time, really kind of going back to the uh, the minimum wage debate. But even, you know, over uh, renovations for what was then the queue, you know, there was a pretty, pretty big divide there. Um, but it is kind of worth noting because, uh, you know, they put six figures into the race for Sandra Williams in the primary. They are not afraid to spend. And I I'm I haven't talked to anybody over there yet, but I would be shocked if they aren't big spenders in the general election as well. Well, I got to tell you, I think this is big news for Kevin Kelly because the SAIU has a remarkable record of backing losers. That is true. I mean, mean, they just they they never seem to back the right horse. And so if I were Kevin Kelly, I'd be high five and like, good. I don't want the SAIU backing me. It's a curse in Cleveland. Yeah, um, there was there was one other interesting uh, thing that I I noticed in that where uh, Justin Bibbs' campaign is going to be canvassing this weekend. 
And uh, they're they're actually kind of hitting Ward 13, which is Old Brooklyn, which is Kevin Kelly's ward, uh, two days this weekend. Going to go out there knocking. It's just kind of it's just it's sort of interesting, uh, uh, you know, real estate that they're going for there. Considering you would expect that uh, Kevin Kelly would have that area pretty well locked up, as he showed he did in the primary. Um, you know, that said, there were plenty of non-Kelly votes, so maybe they're hoping they can convert some of those over to their side. Just uh, just sort of interesting to focus on that ward of any of them. Do you think this will have a, a low temperature for a few weeks before we get closer to November and then it'll start to ramp up? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll, it, it, there's, there's going to be some forums that are starting up and we're going to kind of get back into the swing of things. I think kind of the, the past week has been sort of a, all right, regroup. Let's think of the strategy that we need, uh, you know, do some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, just just sort of get back into it. You, I mean, early voting starts here in what, like two weeks, I think. So yeah. they're, they're going to yeah. have to do a pretty quick turnaround here. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, uh, campaigns kind of figuring out, OK, this is what we need to do. You know, there's, there's a reason that, uh, you know, they they worked hard to get, you know, Blaine Griffin to endorse, you know, basically two days after the primary. So some of it is going to be, you know, trying to get some of that support and see where the dividing lines can kind of be drawn and uh, really just getting your you know supporters out there and making sure that you, you know, canvas and phone bank properly. I'm surprised they work so hard to get these endorsements because it didn't look like any of the endorsements, except maybe Michael R. White's, made much difference. Frank Jackson's clearly didn't in his own ward. Uh, just just as a note, we're we're not going to cover every endorsement that comes down the pike. We're, we're going to aim to do like a weekly story of some sort to say this is how the endorsement shook out. Because otherwise, every council member that stood up to say I endorse so and so we'd end up having to do a story and all the candidates that lost in the primary. So we're going to break it down and look at it as a trend, especially because it's so meaningless. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. We've talked a lot lately about pediatric COVID-19 cases, but we haven't talked raw numbers. Where does Cuyahoga County rank with pediatric cases since the pandemic began? And how many children are we talking about Lisa Garvin, the raw numbers on this thing just struck me when I saw them. Yeah, it's just more bad news. I mean, yesterday we heard that Ohio was number five in the most populous states for pediatric cases. When you look at the highest number of pediatric COVID cases in by county, Cuyahoga comes in second with 13,877. We were beat by Franklin County, which is Columbus. They had over 19,000 cases. Um, Cincinnati also saw just over 13,000, and then it drops precipitously. The next one, Montgomery, is only 8,700. So, yeah, it's trending in the wrong direction. If you look at the diagnosis of pediatric COVID cases since the pandemic began, we're talking 165,000 kids. Out of them, 1,618 have been hospitalized and, and nine have died, unfortunately. So yeah, this is it, it's not pretty. But I will tell you that conservatives will look at these numbers and say, well, you have less than 1% of deaths, you know, and out of 165,000. So that's the argument they use. Yeah, kids are getting it, but they're not really dying of it. But th that's a horrible argument to make. Although the, the, we don't know what the long-term effects will be on no. children whose brains are still developing. The, this virus clearly has neurological effects in adults. And so what that means for development long-term of children's brains, I just 13,000 kids in Cuyahoga County. That's a lot. I, I, it just it was, was anybody else surprised to see that number? I no? personally wasn't surprised, <laughs> but go ahead. 
I was just going to say, you look at the numbers in September alone and you just, you know that the trajectory is just skyrocketing. Like mm-hmm. this isn't something that's just added up slowly over 18 months of pandemic. It's a lot of parental worry because you don't know what the long-term effects are. We've got to get this thing under control. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How shocked are Cuyahoga County residents likely to be by the values of their homes in the just-released reassessments from the county tax office? (laughs) Laura Johnston, I know you got slammed. I haven't received mine yet, and I can't find it online, so I'm waiting to see. But but this this has some big leaps in it in certain jurisdictions. A lot of jurisdictions. Because remember, this is a three-year update. This isn't like, oh, well, my value has appreciated. I understand that. We are looking at 16% increase across the county just in three years. And this is the triennial update that just looks at home sales. So they don't drive past your house. They don't see the condition that it's in. They don't grade it. They just look at your neighborhood and there are thousands of neighborhoods in Cuyahoga County, the way that they draw this up and they compare apples to apples is is the goal. And they just kind of put a number, you know, a multiplier on everything in that tract. So Cleveland was one of eight municipalities that saw residential values rise by more than 20%. And uh, a lot of inter-ring suburbs also saw big jumps. And we actually Mm -hmm. have a map, it's in the Plain Dealer and online that shows you color-coded where the biggest jumps are and it's not exactly what you would expect and all i can think is those those numbers might have fallen a lot before right. we so where you live rocky yes. river was 19 percent, which right. is a lot but but it was also 18 percent. i think it was the number in south euclid and university heights which which is high i mean i, I was surprised to to see them going up like that uh, it was a wide range yeah, the, the the notice people get says this this does not have a, a, the the commensurate increase in your taxes. Don't be alarmed, and and so many people are you know hey this doesn't affect taxes because of because of House Bill nine twenty. It does affect taxes it because does. a certain part of your bill is inside millage, which is immediately affected. Right, and yeah. the next time you vote on a tax, even if it's a renewal, it's a reset button at the new value. This ultimately does cost you real money. Yeah, it does. And the inside millage is, is 10 mils total. But then there's some cities, and Rich Exner pointed this out in an email to us this morning, our data guru, there's charter millage. So cities can can pass their own charter millage that is not affected by House Bill 920. And that completely varies. So depending on what city you're in, how much charter millage you have. And then you got to think about what the other houses in your town have done. Because if you're on the higher end, if you've increased 30% and somebody else has only increased 10%, you're going to be paying a larger chunk of the total bill. So a lot of it depends on just how it all breaks out the pieces of the pie. But a lot of people open this and they are staggered by it. I got messages saying, Laura, how how am I going to fight this? Because I don't think it's fair. And what's interesting is there is no informal review process this year, as there has been in at least the last 12 years that I've been paying attention to this, where you could go in and meet with a member of the county staff and say, here's why I think you're wrong. Here's what I think it should be. And they could just change it 
literally, if not right there, they get back to you in a couple of weeks before the values actually set. Now the values will set and then you have to go to the board of revision. You have to file it between January 1st and March 31st of next year and go through a formal process with a hearing to argue that you shouldn't be paying that much. Yeah, although the formal process keeps everything honest. I mean, the informal process had some room for abuse. And look, that's true. this is the one that's based purely on home sales. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's hard to argue against it. I mean, people get the chance, but house values have risen. It's the the number one asset for a lot of people, but that comes with a tax responsibility. I I was frustrated because, again, I don't have mine, and I was looking at the county's uh, property website, which has very recently been retooled. It's much more user-friendly, but I was amazed at how how wrong it was. Like, it has my house being built nine years earlier than it was actually built. It has my heat system wrong. <laughs> and, it was, and it gives me my the construction of my house is C plus, which I was kind of offended by. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, I guess there's yeah. no place. Oh, go ahead, Lisa Garvin. No, I, I just wanted to jump in with my own perspective because I'm looking at my bill right now or my, my uh, appraisal. My house was prob- seriously undervalued, actually. I mean, the 2020 market value on my ranch house was 133000 My new market value is 162300 which is a, a jump of $29,300. But the ranch house right next door to me, exact same floor plan, just sold for $242,000. The comps in my neighborhood right. are really closer to like 185. So, I mean, my, my house being think, 100. Go ahead. I was just saying, your I do house think be, wait, wait, wait. Your house yeah, being what? 100, 100 years old? No, no. It was built, in, it was built in 56. Oh. I was just saying that. Uh, no, go ahead. Y'all go ahead. I was right. just gonna going to say that, um, and now, now I lost my train of thought, but I think the different pockets are going to be affected different ways. And I do mm-hmm. think the county always undervalues houses. I, I don't think anybody is paying based on the actual true value of what they could sell their house for. No, right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it usually is lowballed, and and that's part of the the difficulty of challenging it. Because if you go in to say this isn't right. They're going to say, well, actually the house is around. They're going to say what Lisa just said, <laughs> that the houses around you are all selling for 50 K more. You want us to make that adjustment right. well, uh, and you'll say no. So, and can you, can I go back to the university Heights thing for a second? Cause that's where we moved from when we moved to Rocky river. And I lost a lot of money on my house when we moved five years ago. So all I can think is those jumps and they are really big. I mean, uh, Maple Heights is looking at a 29% jump average is just because the houses dropped so much further and mm. took a little while to catch up with the increases. Look, this is a fair process. I mean, th- th- this is what is supposed to happen. People are supposed to pay their fair share. You're supposed to have a house assessment that is somewhat close to accurate. And let's face it, house prices have gone up in a big way, especially during the pandemic. The county's doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, it's just people are always alarmed when they open that envelope, as I'm sure I will be when I open it. <laughs> Nobody mine. likes to pay higher taxes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've talked a good bit about Matt Dolan's entry into the Ohio Senate race, but with chief politics writer Seth Richardson in the House, let's go in a different direction. What are some of the iterations of the Republican ticket we could see next November that would be interesting? And who would Democrats like to see there? Seth Richardson, it, I don't think the Democrats want Matt Dolan to be the candidate because he would be much harder to beat. They, I bet they want Josh Mandel or the fringiest fringe candidate they can get. 
but there's also ramifications for down ticket, right? So if if the Democrats get to run against somebody they think is an extremist, they could get more votes for down ticket. What are you seeing? Put it, you know, look into your crystal ball a little, and I will not hold you accountable for this yeah. a year from now. Well, no, I mean, you talk to just about any Democrat around the uh, state, and they say that. Uh, you're, they're really excited, actually, about the prospect of facing Josh Mandel and to a lesser extent, some of the other candidates who've kind of, you know, taken up the the, the pro-Trump lane, so to speak. Right. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of discussion about Matt Dolan. I think that, you know, I think if you talk to Tim Ryan, he's going to be happy to take on whoever. Right. He's he doesn't care. He thinks he's got a message that's going to you know work. And I think there are some Democrats who are starting to get really bullish on him, too. But I think if you look at. Stop, stop, though. Why? I mean, why? What what is going to make middle middle Ohioans passionate about Tim Ryan? I mean, he's going to be able to be portrayed as AOC lefty. And I mean, how how are they getting passionate about him as much as the Republicans want to run or the Democrats want to run against the Josh Mandel? I think the Republicans want to run against a Tim Ryan because he's pretty far left. Well, you look at like Sherrod's success, Sherrod Brown's success, right? And I think Democrats see kind of a, uh, you know, a, a Sherrod Brown light of sorts, right? In Tim Ryan, okay. possibly running yeah. for Senate. Whether that's correct or not, I don't know. Very um, light, though, because look, look at who Sherrod is. Sherrod has, is a person people like. He has been true to himself from the day he started running for office. He's never waffled. He's never been wishy-washy. He stands for a whole bunch of things and he's constantly fought for them. There's never been any mystery about Sherrod Brown. With Tim Ryan, how many times have we talked about him as a potential candidate for something and then he doesn't go for it? I mean, his, his history is nothing like Sherrod Brown's. Yeah, he's going to he's going to have that dog in him. But I, I will say one thing. So I covered his presidential campaign. Right. And that was a you know quixotic from the beginning. But, you know, one thing that I did notice while I was out covering his presidential campaign in Iowa is he is pretty good on the stump. He's kind of got the, you know, uh, able to talk kind of Bill Clinton qualities. Right. When you're talking about sort of the uh, retail politics aspect of it. And that will matter some in this race, right? If people like when people go to see him and get to know him or whatever, is that enough to carry, you know, to, to make up for the dem the deficit that the Democrats have in this race? No, I, I, I well, I don't know, I should say. Um, but I mean, it, it can help some. Um, but yeah, when we're talking about the, the matchups, right, I think, you know, Democrats look at Josh Mandel and they see a guy who, you know, got beat by Sherrod, dropped out of a race, really has kind of been, you know, really operating this campaign on a lot of buffoonery for the past, you know, six, eight months, however long it's been. And, uh, you know, I, I think they are excited at that prospect. And, you know, when I talk to and it, it extends beyond even just the Senate race, right, because you talk to Democrats and they think of the prospect of a Josh Mandel and Jim Renacci ticket, right? Jim Renacci running for governor, possibly, which, you know, I think that, you know, that that match that that ticket is probably a little pie in the sky, but I guess it could happen. Right. You know, never say never. Um, but when you think about the Republican Party over the past decade, there are two candidates who have lost statewide office, Josh Mandel and Jim Renacci. So I think they're I, I think Democrats are getting excited about that uh, possibility happening and, you know, really kind of hoping and praying that it does happen so that they, you know, have a chance at a statewide election. Well, sometime. The, and the other thing is Jennifer Bruner was immensely popular in the Supreme Court race last year, and she's taking on Sharon Kennedy for the Supreme Court chief justice. Sharon Kennedy is pretty much a staunch Republican. I, I think Jennifer Bruner being on the ticket with 
uh, Democrats that people like could could make a difference. But if they're running against Matt Dolan, I think it's a lot harder. Matt Dolan is is much more of the the centrist. I mean, he's he's very conservative, but the centrist conservative, the guy who gets stuff done, you won't be able to portray him as some fire breathing nut job who's always on Twitter saying horribly hateful things. Well, and if you uh, look at if you look at like the successful Republicans since, you know, Republicans have really kind of taken over the state, right? They're all kind, you know, Matt Dolan really fits that mold, right? He's very similar to a Mike DeWine or a George Voinovich or a Bob Taft in terms of kind of temperament and political style um, and even really background a little bit. Right. So, yeah, I think he kind of fits the mold of what a, uh, a quote unquote traditional Ohio Republican has kind of looked like over the past two decades, especially. Um, and that would probably bode well for, uh, you know, some of this suburban drift that we've seen. Yeah, I, I, it, it'll be. I, look, we've talked about it, that the path is difficult for Matt Dolan. Although, if he's able to make himself stand out as that centrist guy, he could, could do it. There are a whole lot of Republicans I've heard from that really hope he does because they're sick of the, the Trump takeover of the party. Um, but I think the Democrats would much rather anybody but him at this point. And uh, uh, the number one they want to run against is Josh Mandel because he's just he's horrible. I think Republicans will vote Democrat to keep Josh Mandel out of office because they don't like him so much. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We have less than a minute left, so I'm not even going to ask the next question. I guess we'll leave it there. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Stay dry. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. (music) 